Welcome to the Whistling Podcast. My name is Sao Pockel. This is Lucky 13. Today I'll be reading an article from Charles Dickens magazine all the year round. This article appeared in the January 4th, 1873 edition. It's a mystery who wrote this article. Charles Dickens himself was not too involved in his own magazine after 1863, and he died in 1870, leaving the magazine to his son Charles Dickens Jr. Supposedly, there was once a guide compiled to indicate who wrote which article, but it has been lost. It doesn't really matter, I suppose. This is a long article, so I'll keep this introduction short. I've managed to avoid Charles Dickens in my life so far, although I suppose I got my fill was Saturday afternoon made-for-TV movies. I think I was supposed to read his novels in high school, but I managed to avoid it. If you think I'm missing something important, please make a note in the comments. I don't know if Charles Dickens was a whistler. That would be the most important thing to know. I would imagine that a lot of his characters in his books were whistlers, especially street urchins and paupers. But uh, as I said before, I have no idea. On to the article. All the Year Round a weekly journal conducted by Charles Dickens, with which is incorporated Household Words. Part 50. Price 9 Pence. January 4th, 1873. Whistlers and Whistling. Whistlers are not generally regarded with favor in polite society, nor admired for the sweet music they produce. When a man is about to show himself saucy, he whistles with a peculiar intonation. And when he wishes to hide something wrong, he whistles to show the unconcernedness of innocent simplicity, just as a woman, according to the testimony of one of her sex, hums a tune with similar intent. Dictionary meanings of the word whistle offer wide facilities for attaching queer notions to it. For instance, a whistle is a small tubular instrument to be blown in a certain way. The whistle, in the lingo of many a beer drinker, is the mouth. A whistle is a particular tone or sound. To whistle is to produce that sound. A whistle or whistling is a blowing of wind amongst trees and through crevices. Amid these various meanings, it would be hard if we could not hit upon some or other to fit all sorts of likes and dislikes, proverbs and old sayings, omens and superstitions, habits and customs, guarded, however, with this important exception, that women seldom whistle. (laughs) 
the references in literature are getting a bit repetitive, so to spice them up a bit, I've added some of Victor Borga's phonetic punctuation. If you are 85 years or older, you'll really get a kick out of this. I will let him explain. When you write a letter, you use punctuation marks in order to make your sentences understood. For instance, you write a sentence like, Was I an idiot? And you put a question mark after that sentence. That indicates that you are not quite sure. Now, if you instead of the question mark after the same sentence put an exclamation point, then there is no doubt. I hope you see the difference on account of these little signs, which make them very important but we do not use them when we talk, and that might be the reason that we do not understand each other. Therefore, I have invented the phonetic punctuation, which means that while we talk, we shall use punctuation marks by giving them sound, like a period when. Every time you finish a sentence, you want a period, you just do, then we know it's all over. Here's a dash. That was period and dash. Exclamation point is a vertical dash with a period underneath. Here's a comma. Quotation are two commas. Or if you happen to be left-handed, question mark is rather difficult. Finally, we have the colon. You know, the two little dots, you put them either over or under each other, as you feel like. I think in America, you usually put them over each other. Here in Denmark, we put them under each other, but uh, just a small country. Colon sounds like this. That is all you have to learn. Let it not be supposed that whistling is absolutely without a scientific basis. Nevertheless, Certain it is that we do not usually think much about science when we whistle. The man who, according to Dryden, trudged along, unknowing what he thought, and whistled as he went for want of thought, <laughs> implied by that form of expression that he was not thinking about much, and least of all about recondite philosophical exposition. The flaxen-headed cowboy who whistled over the lee. Whistles because he liked it, and that's enough. And so did Milton's husbandman. L'Allegro by John Milton, where the great sun begins his state. Robed in flames and amber light, the clouds in thousand liveries dight, while the plowman, near at hand, whistles o'er the furrowed land. <laughs> and the milkmaid singeth light, and the mower wets his scythe, and every shepherd tells his tale under the hawthorn in the dale. Plowmen, indeed, are favorite whistlers with the poets. There is gaze. The plowman leaves the task of day and trudging homeward, whistles on the way. 
The aid of whistling and passing away weary time is made use of in Act Two of the Tragedy of King Lear by William Shakespeare. I am sorry for thee, friend. Tis the Duke's pleasure, whose disposition all the world well knows will not be rubbed nor stopped. I'll entreat for thee. Pray do not, sir. I have watched and travelled hard. Some time I shall sleep out. The rest I'll whistle. A good man's fortune may grow out of heels. Give you good morrow. The Duke's to blame in this. Twill be ill-taken. In As You Like It, we have the whistling tone of a wheezy man. Scene 7, The Forest. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first the infant, mewling and puking in the nurse's arms, and then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like snail unwillingly to school, and then the lover sighing like a furnace, with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrow. Then a soldier, full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honour, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice, in fair round belly with good capon lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances, and so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank, and his big manly voice turning again towards childish treble. Pipes and whistles of the sound. Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. Cowper Cooper. William Cooper makes another class of man whistle, but it is rather unkind to call him a wretch, seeing that he is the postman. He whistles as he goes, light-hearted wretch, cold and yet cheerful, messenger of grief perhaps to thousands, and of joy to some, to him indifferent whether grief or joy. <laughs> In another line, Cooper describes his hero as whistling as if unconcerned and gay. <laughs> Nor must we forget the lover who, in obedience to a hint from his mistress, attended to the injunction, Oh, whistle and I'll come to you, me lad. At church or at market, whene'er you meet me, go by me as though that you cared not a flea, but steal me a blink of your bonny black tea. 
And look as you were not a looking at me. Oh, whistle and I'll come to you, me lad. Oh, whistle and I'll come to you, me lad. To me mother and father and all may go mad. Oh, whistle and I'll come The readers of The Spectator will not forget the manner in which Addison associates whistling with fun and frolic. It is the story of three countrymen who competed for a prize in a whistling match, a guinea for him who could whistle clearest and go through his tune without laughing. It was one of the conditions that a merry Andrew was to stand before them and try to provoke their risable faculties by ludicrous contortions and grimaces. Two of the three broke down under this ordeal, the third remained a stoic and bore off the prize. But as we have implied, all this whistling has science to rest upon. The whistlers, without knowing it, are performing acoustical experiments. When air, so says science, is impelled forcibly through a small orifice, it gives rise to vibrations appreciable to the ear. And the more rapid the vibrations, the more acute the note. The mechanism concerned in producing audible sound, belonging to the throat, tongue, palate, and lips, is something marvelous in its beauty, especially what are called the vocal cords or cords in the throat, which vibrate in a wonderful way during singing and whistling. Anatomists have shown the structure of these parts. Microscopists have detected and measured the minute details of many of the component tissues, tubes, and fibers while physiologists have gone far in tracing the exquisite connections between one function or operation and the rest. Professor Willis of Cambridge once made a series of tubes which enabled him to imitate in a humble way all the regular vowel sounds as well as the nasal vowels or consonants. Other men have spent half their lives in devising what they called talking machines very poor talkers at best, but illustrative of the complex way in which the size and shape of cavities modify the pitch and other characteristics of audible sounds. Helmholtz, the great German investigator, has pursued this matter further than anybody else and has paved the way to much probable future knowledge of the physiology of singing. Do we talk of the physiology of whistling? Not quite. We only mean that when science has revealed to us something more than we at present know about the physiology of singing, whistling will at the same time be added as what boys would call, quote, a little one in, unquote. Nearly closed lips instead of generally open lips, and the tongue all but quiescent. Herr von Joel, in all probability, knew nothing of these matters so far as science was concerned. He was a good whistler and he knew it, and having reason to believe that he could whistle a little money into his pocket, he tried the experiment and succeeded, until at length the muscles of his mouth refused any longer to adapt themselves to the purpose. Herr Van Joel, aka David Van Joel, was an interesting character. He was known to Dickens and Thackeray and other literati who frequented the London Supper Clubs, where he performed. If you're interested in further reading, I'll leave a link to an article about Herr von Joel. Back to the article.
There are many odd ways of producing musical sounds, or what are intended to pass as such, by some process midway between those of singing and whistling. Boys sometimes produce a kind of music through the small teeth of a comb covered with tissue paper by breathing through the two layers. So it seems that the old comb and paper instrument has been made obsolete by the kazoo. I was watching a Marx Brothers movie the other night. I believe it was a night at the opera, and Harpo Marx was playing the comb and tissue paper. It is a very interesting sound. I have tried to find the most uh, interesting example of it, and it is this one. This is the Mound City Blue Blowers, featuring Red McKenzie playing comb and tissue paper. Here is Dark Town Strutter's Ball from Stein, an accomplished performer on the Jew's harp, who destroyed all his teeth by too long a continuance in this practice, illustrated in a skillful manner the effect produced on a simple vibrating spring by varying the internal capacity and shape of the mouth. Here is Jahar Boogie by Joe St. Clair's Cowboys of the Air. Guitar boogie, a bass fiddle pump, an old set of ass with a solid jump. But if you wanna see me shake my feet, just let an old jaw harp hit a boogie Many persons can produce music from a common clay tobacco pipe by placing one end between the teeth, varying the shape of the cavity of the mouth, and maintaining a series of slight percussions on the stem. Some 30 years ago, four Germans came over to England and gave performances as the Bohemian Brothers or Bohemian Minstrels. Their music was of a peculiar character. Three of them sang in the ordinary way. The fourth, without articulating any words, brought forth sounds of vast depth and power by a peculiar action of the muscles of the mouth. To these sounds was given a quality like those of the strings of a double bass by the movements of the tongue. About the same time, or somewhat more recently, a party of Tyrolese came over, who by skillful modifications of the shape of the mouth cavity, strange contortions of the lips and exterior of the mouth, and still more strange breathings through the nostrils, managed to imitate, in a rude sort of way, many of the instruments in an orchestra. A Sardinian blind man, 
said to have been a shepherd, when in London a few years ago played complete overtures and orchestral pieces on a little whistle only two or three inches long. This peculiar achievement was due partly to numerous changes in the degree of force with which he blew into the whistle, but still more to the movements of lips, tongue, and palate in modifying the size and shape of the mouth cavity. I always want to find modern musical examples for the things these ancients are talking about. In my time, during the last century, there were artists such as Bobby McFerrin, Take Six, vocalese groups like Manhattan Transfer, as well as that one guy from the Police Academy movies who could do amazing things vocally. Some of them even whistled. I think the best example of creating orchestral sounds vocally were some older groups like the Mills Brothers. brothers were a so-called coffee pot group who used coffee pots to amplify and alter their voices. I got the idea for this example from a podcast my brother recommended to me called A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs. The Mills Brothers, it seems, started out as a kazoo group, so there's a nice tie-in there. A good example of using the simplest of things to create music is a video that came up on Facebook a while back of a man using a drinking straw as a makeshift oboe. The video was called, Peter Bastian is playing a straw like a double reed instrument. It's worth checking out and I will put the link in the show notes. The smoking pipe is not as common as it used to be, although I played in a band in Portland, Oregon called Professor Gall, whose leader was a pipe smoker. He was talented in many ways, but I don't remember him ever being able to play the pipe musically. May he rest in peace. Unfortunately, I could not find any recordings or videos of someone using a pipe musically. Now, back to the article. But to return to our whistlers, we have a vivid, though not very delighted, recollection of a whistler in the streets of London who, in wet weather and dry, in summer and winter, in forenoon and afternoon, from Monday morning till Saturday night, whistled the same ever-repeated, never-changing tune, poor fellow. His appetite for bread and cheese probably survived his power of earning those luxuries by such mouth-aching means. Every schoolboy is a whistler in a way that involves a bit of acoustic philosophy, or if not, a few trials ought to make him competent to produce fist music or fist whistling. Bring the thumbs of the two hands together, side by side, arranging the hands and the closed fingers to form a hollow cavity. Blow into a narrow aperture left between the two thumbs, and you may, by a little dexterity, produce a loud sound, 
shrill or deep according to the force of the blast. As to another kind of sound, produced by blowing hard when two fingers are between the closed lips, we had better say nothing about it. It is naughty, the thieves' whistle. There is more connection between these kinds of finger whistling and the small toy whistles of children and the dog whistles known to sportsmen than might at first appear. A narrow orifice is the main thing concerned, whether the sides of the orifice be of bone and flesh, or of metal and wood. There is an old superstition, which it is not easy to get to the bottom of, concerning a certain cry or sound heard in the night, supposed to be produced by the seven whistlers. What or who these whistlers are is an unsolved problem. In some rural districts, they are popularly believed to be witches, in others ghosts, in others devils, while in the midland counties they are supposed to be birds, either plovers or martins, some say swifts. In Leicestershire it is deemed a bad omen to hear the seven whistlers, and our old writers supply many passages illustrative of the peculiar credulity. Spencer in his Fairy Queen speaks of the whistler shrill that whoso hears doth die. Scott in the Lady of the Lake names the bird with which his character associated the cry. And in the plover's shrilly strain, the signal whistle heard again. When the colliers of Leicestershire are flush of money, we are told, and indulge in a drinking bout, they sometimes hear the warning voice of the seven whistlers. They get sobered and frightened, and will not descend the pit again till next day. Wordsworth speaks of a countryman who, He the seven birds hath seen that never part, Seen the seven whistlers in their nightly rounds, And counted them. A year or two ago, during a thunderstorm which passed over Leicestershire, and while vivid lightning was darting through the sky, immense flocks of birds were seen flying about uttering doleful, affrighted cries as they passed, and keeping up for a long time a continual whistling like that made by some kinds of seabird. The number must have been immense, for the local newspapers mentioned the same phenomenon in different parts of the neighboring counties of Northampton, Leicester, and Lincoln. A gentleman, conversing with a countryman on the following day, asked him what kind of birds he supposed them to have been. The man answered, they are what are called the Seven Whistlers, and added that whenever they are heard it is considered a sign of some great calamity, and that the last time he had heard them was on the night before the deplorable explosion of fire damp at the Hartley Colliery. Soldiers too in time of fierce war are said to be not quite free from a superstitious belief that such cries in the air denote an approaching battle with great slaughter. A stranger notion than any of these associates the seven whistlers, or the shrill birds of some indefinite number, with a very old myth of past days. One evening some years ago a gentleman was crossing a wide-spreading moor in Lancashire in company with an elderly man belonging to the district. As they were passing along they were startled by the whistling overhead of a flight of plovers. The old man said that in the days of his youth, the Lancashire hill folk 
considered such an occurrence a bad omen, foretelling ill luck to the person who hears the whistling. Further questions brought out the fact that these birds are called the Wandering Jews. The bodies of the birds contain the souls of the Jews who assisted at the crucifixion and who are doomed to float in the air forever. The gentleman was again reminded by his companion of the omen when on coming to a crossroad, he found that a particular stagecoach for which he had been on the lookout had just passed, whereby he had to finish the journey on foot. The wandering Jews had robbed him of his ride. There must be something very old and widely spread in this kind of legend, for the Kayik men or boatmen on the Bosphorus, when they see flights of birds continually passing up and down the channel, believe them to be the souls of the damned, doomed never to have rest in this world, and never to see another, always moving about, but having no purpose in their coming and going. Whistling or rather blowing through a whistle has sometimes been adopted as a test whereby to determine whether a toper still retains soberness enough to blow a good blast. A drinking cup, fashioned by a silversmith at Nuremberg in the 16th century, was so shaped that it could not be set down on a table till quite emptied, nor filled unless held in the hand. When the mouth of the cup was downwards, the bottom appeared surmounted by a windmill. The drinker, having emptied the cup or goblet, blew into a little pipe at the side, gave a shrill whistle, and at the same time set in motion the veins of the windmill. The number of times that the mill turned round was indicated on a small dial, and thus the drinker could show visible testimony that he was still vigorous enough to blow lustily. something far more stirring than this in Burns. One of his ballads, full of life and go, begins, I sing of a whistle, a whistle of a worth. I sing of a whistle, the pride of the north, was brought to the court of our good Scottish king, and along with this whistle all Scotland shall ring. The story goes that in the train of Anne of Denmark, when she came to Scotland with James VI, afterwards James I of Great Britain, there came also a Danish gentleman of gigantic stature and great prowess, and not less great as a worshipper of Bacchus. He had in his possession a little ebony whistle. When a banquet and drinking bout commenced, he laid this whistle on the table, and whichever guest was last able to blow it, all the others being disabled by the potency of the wine, was to carry off the whistle as a trophy of victory. The Dane produced credentials of his victories. Without a single defeat, at Copenhagen, Stockholm, Moscow, Warsaw, and several of the smaller courts of Germany, he challenged the Scots to try the issue with him. Nothing loth, they encountered him, but he saw them one after another under the table, powerless to blow a whistle of any kind. At length came forward Sir Robert Lowry of Maxwell Town, who, after a hard contest of three days and three nights duration, saw the Dane prostrated, blew a shrill whistle, and carried off the prize, with as much liquor as his inner man could possibly contain. 
Sir Robert's son afterwards lost the whistle to Walter Riddle of Glen Riddle on the 16th of October 1790. The whistle was, after all these years, contested for by Sir Robert Lowry, a lineal descendant of the former owner, Riddle of Glen Riddle and Ferguson of Craigdorock. This was the encounter celebrated in Burns's ballad, one stanza of which tells us that, Six bottles apiece had well wore out the night, when gallant Sir Robert to finish the fight, turned o'er in one bumper a bottle of red, and swore twas the way that their ancestor did. The orgies need not invite us into detail. Suffice it to say that the Lowry and the Riddle succumbed to the Ferguson, who triumphantly carried off the whistle. Whistling and drinking are connected by other ties, not quite so dissipated and inebriating as those associated with the Danish and Scottish achievements. There are whistling tankards and whistling cups, which seem to have been intended by their original makers and users to supply a mechanical substitute for the call of waiter at a tavern. An old lady, widow of a canon residentiary of York, recently presented to the Corporation of Hull two ancient silver tankards, one of them called a whistling tankard, it had belonged to Anthony Landial, mayor of Hull in 1669. A whistle was attached to one side in such a way that it could not be sounded until quite empty. A toper knew that when he could make the whistle speak, there was not wherewithal in the tankard to supply his wants, whereupon he blew a shrill blast to summon the taverner, waiter, or servitor. Among other such tankards known to be still in existence, one is made of earthenware, about eight inches high. It is narrow, quaintly ribbed or embossed on the outside, and provided with a whistle in the feet or stand. There are large earthenware whistling cups or bowls preserved by some of the old Devonshire families for toast and ale and jolly junketings. One of them has a capacity for six pints of good liquor and has a rude but hospitable motto around the brim, inviting the guests to share the contents of the bowl. There are four substantial handles and a whistle on one side. These whistling tankards and bowls have suggested an explanation not quite so far-fetched as some etymological speculations concerning the origin of certain phrases or sayings which are not easily understood else, such as whistling for it, whistling for his drink, and wetting his whistle. Whistling occupies or occupied, sailors must themselves say whether the superstition has been driven away by screw steamers and ironclads, a peculiar place among the omens believed in by sailors. Whistling used to be considered by old salts as a sort of irreverent defiance of providence, or rather as tending to provoke the evil one to show his power in stirring up tempestuous gales. 
When a storm is raging, don't whistle. When there is a dead calm, whistle a little to encourage a gentle breeze. This seems to be the formula. Miners and pitmen are strongly smitten with a superstition bearing some analogy to this. They do not whistle in the mines and express uneasiness when a visitor unconsciously does so. Invisible beings are much more earnestly believed in down in these dark places than up amid the broad light of day, and those beings seem to consider whistling rather discourteous to themselves. As to the alpine guides dissuading mountain climbers from whistling in dangerous places, there is a cogent reason for this. In certain states of the snow, whistling would produce a vibration in the air likely to dislodge and bring down an avalanche. A call to action. A call to action. A call to action. A call to action. You can join the Whistling Podcast group on Facebook. I now have a website, thewhistlingpodcast.com. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash thewhistlingpodcast. And I also have a Quora site for discussions, thewhistlingpodcastspace.quora.com. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on The Whistling Podcast. (laughs) 